In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to talk about the reality of hell today. The title of this message would be The Great Divide. This week and next week, today we're going to talk about the judgment of unbelieving hearts. Next week we'll talk about the judgment of believing hearts. But something so very important today, and uh, as I said, I've, I've spent, I've been debating this message for about a month, praying over it and weeping over it and fasting over it. But uh, there's something that eternal life hangs in the balance today, and this is a topic that no one wants to talk about, including myself. Nobody likes to preach on hell or, or judgment. But we have a responsibility before God, and I have a responsibility for, before God to preach the whole truth of His Word. Somebody say amen. 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 And so do we believe today in a God of love that is willing to send people to an eternal hell? Some would argue uh, there is or is not a hell. Who's going to go there and will it be forever? Some people will say, well, how can a loving God send people to a fiery hell? Or maybe if they go there, maybe he'll end it, and maybe it won't be forever. Or maybe it's for only really evil people like Hitler and, and the like. Or we'll say things like, no, God wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't send so-and-so to hell. We'll go to the funerals of those that we know did not live for the Lord Jesus, and the pastor will preach that light message. It'll almost preach them into heaven because no one wants to dare say the truth to a grieving family. And we wonder what God's justice is, where His mercy lies. And in so thinking, we often put God on our own level, saying, well, I wouldn't do that, or surely God wouldn't send someone like them to hell. But the Bible says that God's ways are far above our ways. And I love what Francis Chan uh, said in one of his sermons. He said, the Creator's sense of justice is more developed than ours. His sense of love and mercy is perfect. So we can have many opinions about God, but we're going to look to His Word today, and we're going to look to Scripture. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. What does God's Word say? There's a lot of opinions in the world today. There's many popular TV preachers. There's many popular authors debating the very reality of hell. Mankind is denying hell's existence. Oh, sure, we want to go to heaven, but nobody wants to talk about hell. But what does Scripture say? Because the only thing we have in this world that is sure is the truth of God's Word. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. Scripture declares that God is a righteous judge, that His throne is established for judgment, and further, that after death, every single one of us in this room today will give an account before God. He'll judge everyone from widows to kings with impartiality and according to His righteousness, Psalms 96 says. In Revelation chapter 20, the Apostle John sees a picture of this great divide, this final day. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. 
And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Daniel chapter 12 tells us there's going to be a day when we are standing before the God of the universe, the great judge, and some men will be rewarded with everlasting life and separated to God's right. And some men will be rewarded uh, and punished with everlasting contempt and separated to God's left. And my question for every single one of us here today and to our families and friends and to the whole world is, how will you stand before God on that great day of dividing? How will I stand on that day before God? How confident will I stand before a holy God? And what John is picturing here for us is called the great white throne judgment. It is the judgment of unbelieving hearts. And he says, I saw the dead, those that are not living in Jesus Christ. I saw the dead. And at the mention of God, he says that everything was fled away and there was no, no place in God's new creation found for these dead who are not in Jesus Christ. He says, I see these dead. They were standing before God, their names not written in the book of life, and they had no place. They had nowhere to go, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. All sin had been exposed before the holy God. And there John sees all of man's sinful kingdom. He sees all the things we see on the news today, the greed and the drugs and the rape and the prostitution and the violence and the murder and the war and the rioting. We think of man's slavery, his corruption, his idolatry, all of the false religions, the philosophers, the atheists, all those unrepentant voices who mock God on Hollywood stage and from every pulpit and from every political office, all those who mock him and deny him. They stand there on that day before His holiness, from great to small, and they fall at His feet as if dead, and Scripture would tell us they'll all confess Him as Lord, as the great King. And so He sees these who are standing before all of man's corrupt kingdom, all of man's idolatry, and all of man's atheism, and all of man's paganism, nothing written in the book of life for their names, and they stand face to face, one at a time, before a holy God, No excuse, no words can come out of their mouth. They stand there blank with no rebuttal, no no excuse from their mouth. Nothing they can say would deny the truth of their sin because in that moment the Word of God declares that every sin out of their mind, everything ever thought, everything their mouth ever said, everything their hands ever did would begin to judge them. The Word of God would call it all out. And all those who've loved this world more than God, all those who've lived for the flesh, 1 Peter 4 tells us, will stand before that day. Those who've had immoral thoughts, those who've had sex outside of marriage, the Apostle Paul says, those who've worshipped material possessions or idols, those who've committed murder and hate in their hearts, adultery, homosexuality. Bible says those who participate in false religion or witchcraft, those who've gotten drunk ever in their life, those who've ever attended wild parties, who've swindled, who've stole, who've hated in anger, who've coveted, who've been jealous, envied, or prided themselves in their own power and not repented and turned to Jesus, will stand before Him on that great, horrible day of dividing, and they'll hear the word, Guilty, depart from me. That's going to be a fearful day. And man can go on in his own nature, and he can continue to have rioting and racism in the streets. He can continue to kill people, mowing them over in cars. He can continue to... uh, mock God and His holiness and say there is no God and we don't need prayer and we don't need God and we don't need the Bible and we 
Don't need all these things that God says is good and holy. But on that day, there will be no excuse. There'll be no rioting in the street. There'll be no rebellion. There'll be no rebuttal. But on that day, all men will be silent before a holy God. What a fearful day. He says they're sent away. They're thrown into the lake of fire. We're going to talk about hell. What is hell like? Nobody in danger of hell wants to talk about it. Nobody in danger of hell wants to think about it. But Jesus preached on judgment, on hell, and on the consequences of faithlessness more than any other topic in the Gospels. More than any other topic, Jesus preached on the consequence of sin and judgment and hell. Why? Because he knew it was a real place, and he had a great love for you and I. He knew it was a reality, and he had a great love towards us. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells us this parable. It's actually probably a true story. He tells a a story of a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. And the rich man had no love for Lazarus or the things of God, but he was prideful in his own wealth. He was prideful in his own status. And even though he was a Jew, he knew not the Lord nor had the Lord's heart. And we find Lazarus and the rich man have both died. And they find themselves in a place called Sheol. And Sheol is another name for the place of the dead for those Old Testament believers. And in the Old Testament, when you died, you went to the place of waiting, a place of Sheol, a place of the dead. And on one side of the place of the dead was a place we would call Hades. It's not hell, but it was the precursor to hell. And in that place of waiting in Hades, we find the rich man. They're already condemned, ready to sentence to that lake of fire, to that eternal torment. We find Lazarus. Lazarus is on the other side. He is in a place called Abraham's bosom, the paradise, the waiting place of the righteous. And the rich man begins to cry out to Lazarus. So those of you who know the story, the man, he, man, he cries out to Lazarus that, and to Father Abraham that, he would give, that Lazarus would be able to give him just one drop of water. Because he is in utter torment in these flames. The Bible specifically says in this Hades, this waiting place for an eternal hell, this rich man finds himself, the word of God says, he found himself in torment. He found himself in agony. He found no comfort due to the flame. He simply desired one drop of water. And he lived in that place with eternal regret for the misspent life that he had. It was all made clear to him in that moment. All of his regrets, all of the things that he had missed out, and all the things he should have done, and all he knew who was in heaven. He knew his family was still on the earth. He could see into that place. And yet all of this was not yet even the fullness of hell. Sheol would be taken away when Jesus Christ would come to the earth and he would go down to the pit and he would take those righteous saints who had faith, he would take them into his presence, but yet he would take Hades. And Hades, we'll find later, will be cast into an even worse place a place called hell, the lake of fire. The Bible says this, that hell is a place of torment, of eternal destruction. It's made for the devil and his demons. And Jesus used the term Gehenna often to mean hell, and that Gehenna was this slope off the side of Jerusalem. And Gehenna, uh, Scripture would tell us in, in the falling of the kings, when there was no kings, and men did as, what, as whatever they pleased in the eyes of God. Uh, Gehenna was this place where they would sacrifice children to pagan gods like Moloch. 
And these Jews, corrupted in their own sinfulness and their own wickedness of their own hearts, begin to uh, send their own children to a fiery furnace off the side of Jerusalem, the very place where God had established His name, and they had corrupted it with fire, paganism, and great evil. And Jesus says in Jeremiah, or God says in Jeremiah, that He will turn that very place for those wicked-type people into their own place of slaughter. Instead of throwing their children to the fire, but he will throw them into the fire. And Jesus used that word. He said, hell is like Gehenna. This is hell. He would say hell and Gehenna in the same word. And it was this place of slaughter where men of evil would be put through the fire and they would bring judgment upon their own selves. And there are several words repeatedly that Jesus has used to describe hell. He says hell is outer darkness. It is a furnace of eternal fire. It is eternal punishment for the accursed and the lawless. All sinners, all sinners that have unrepentant sinners, unrepentant hearts, says will be bound with Satan and his angels, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Paul would go on to say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, this is all those who do not obey the gospel of Christ. All those who do not obey the good news of Jesus' Christ's salvation and believe on Him, they will suffer the reckoning of God, the penalty of eternal destruction, away from His presence and glory of His power. And three times Revelation will describe the place of hell as the lake of fire, the place that Hades and death and the devil and his legions will be thrown into and bound for all eternity. But that's not even the highlight of it. As I begin to reflect and listen to some great preaching of old and pray over it, And think about it. I wanted God to take me to the reality of hell because I found in my own life I don't think about hell as often as I should. It does not motivate me to preach the gospel. It does not put a sense in me, an awareness of my sin. uh, To bring me to a place to respect God's holiness, to understand how can a God who is so loving send people to this place. And I think we have to understand it. And I'll give you a picture of that place this morning. No human words can sufficiently describe hell. No horror movie, no nightmare can do it justice. God is life, but hell is death. God is light, but hell is darkness. God is living water, and hell is eternal fire. It's a continual casting away from the presence of God, Scripture says, experiencing His full wrath and judgment, something no man can describe, nor man can understand Egypt only experienced a small measure of God's wrath in the days of Moses. But Scripture says in hell will burn with the hottest heat. Mankind who refuses to turn to Jesus, there'll be an agony and torment for all eternity. Our nose would fill with the smell of foul sulfur, Revelation 14 tells us. Our mouth turns dry as cotton. There'll be no water, there'll be no life, there'll be no trees, no animals, only empty darkness. As far as you can see, to the right and left of you will stand nothing but an eternity of hopelessness before a holy God. And groping in the dark, we can only imagine that our ears would fill with the shrills of billions, a deafening sound of weeping and wailing, unimaginable horrors, billions of cries in the night. And worse than hell, in that moment, like that rich man, we'll know how we missed heaven. We'll know our families. And friends that are in heaven without us will see how easy it was to repent and believe. We'll continually relive 
those missed opportunities just like that rich man. And David Wilkerson would say that this is the worm that never dies. It is a continual replay, a, a loop of your misspent life. And he says every sermon you've ever heard in that place will condemn you. Every time someone ever asked you to come to church, it would condemn you. You would remember all those opportunities that God had put in your way. And there you'll stand condemned before a holy God because we've rejected His love. And on our own doing, isolated and alone and apart from families and friends, you see, there'll be no bonding with family that is in hell. There'll be no parties and drinking and celebration in hell. There'll be no fun days in hell. You'll be alone, isolated from all people from all eternity. Your friends and your families, you'll know, are in heaven. And you'll find because of the goodness of God has been departed from that place. In hell, there is not an ounce of joy. There is not an ounce of peace. In hell, there is not an ounce of love. In hell, there is not an ounce of hope. There is only an eternity of spiritual, physical, and mental insanity. Spiritually darkened people in hell drift farther and farther from God because it is a continual drifting away. And that sin that so corrupted us and refused to allow us Uh, To turn to a holy God and a loving God, it begins to consume our minds, no doubt. In hell, there'll be no desire fulfilled. The addict who desired his drug more than the love of God will find no fix. The alcoholic who desired their drink more than the love of God will find no drop, and lust will find no satisfaction. It's been said in hell, you'll grow tired and weary, but in the pain and in the screaming of the deafening of the screams of night, you'll find no rest and no sleep. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 says, There'll be no rest for you in hell. Those of you who have ever spent nights awake from some time, you just want to sleep, but you're not able to. There'll be no rest for you in hell. You'll probably at one point wish to take your own life, but you'll realize you can never die. And there, hell, in the, in the pits of hell, the demons and man alike will experience the terrible wrath of God. It'll be as a prison with no prison guards full of chaos and disorder. And then out of the midst, out of the immense physical and spiritual suffering that those souls endure, the Bible says there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is the snarling and cursing at God because of the sin of our minds will turn and begin to blame God for all of our sorrow. You see, there is no repenting in hell. There is no turning to God in hell. It was a depravity of mind. Sin begins to corrupt us because apart from God, there is no goodness. Apart from God, there is no understanding of sin. Apart from God, there is no peace and joy and love and hopelessness. And in that moment, as you and your own sin begin to, in hatred, begin to curse God, eternity has just begun. You think, well, who deserves such a place? How could God do this to anyone? You see, that's just it. We do it to ourselves. Hell, ultimately, is the complete absence of God. It's a rejection of His love and His mercy and His grace, of His holiness. And how could God do this to anyone? Repeatedly, people will ask, Luke chapter 12, verse 5, we ask ourselves, why hell? Jesus begins to contrast the fear and the love of God. And we often don't understand that. But Jesus says this, 
I'll warn you whom you should fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Then he goes immediately in the same breath, he says, But are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. In one sentence, he says, Fear God, because as a sinner, he will send you to an eternal hell. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, fear not, because you are loved by God. We see there is this holiness of fear. I need to be able to understand the love of God and the fear of God. I want to live in both the love of God and the fear of God because I fear stepping outside and living on my own account and living on my own merit and standing before a holy God as a sinner with no excuse apart from the grace of God. And that I should fear. I fear death without Jesus Christ. But in Him, He says, do not fear for you are more valuable than many, any sparrow of the earth. You are more valuable. He knows the hairs on your head. So he says, I tell you, fear him and do not fear him. Mark Driscoll, he's a very popular pastor. He says, one of the problems with America and the world today is this misunderstanding of how a holy God can send people to a, an eternal hell. And he says, this is the problem. The Bible says that God is love. But love is not God. We can say, I love baseball. I love that other man. I love that other woman. We can say those things, and we can put love by any definition that man so tries to skew it. But the Bible says God is love, therefore love is defined by God. God is not defined by man's definition of love. And so God is love, but love is not God. We cannot apply the word love to anything we say, well, God is supposed to love. Yes, that's true. But God is is love. Love is not God. God is love, but He's also holy. And Scripture speaks of His wrath over 600 times. And I'll say it this way. There is a throne of grace, but it's still a throne. We want to come to God on our own terms and by our own definitions and by our own means. We want to make God like we want Him to be. We want to define Him as we want to define Him. We want to write the rules the way it pleases us and satisfies us. But you want to come to the throne of grace, it's still a throne. You still have to bow before Him, even in His grace. And we have trouble today with a loving and a fearful God because we have trouble with sin and we don't understand His holiness. I've been wrestling with this for some time, and I'm going to give you a few things about why God would send us to hell apart from His grace. The first is that we think of our sin too lightly. We live in a world of gray today. The whole world is gray. There is no good. There is no bad. Come and do what you want. As long as it doesn't affect me, do as you please, the world's argument is. How, do it as it is right in your own eye. That's what was the problem in the days of old, in the days of Israel, when they rejected the law of God. Each man did as they all, all thought was right in their own eyes. And today is no different. The Bible says we're born into sin, and from the earliest age, you think about it, we try to get away with it. Even the earliest age, the toddler knows when mom and dad says no to that cookie. They sneak into that kitchen when the mom and dad's not looking and try to get it anyway. We know right from wrong from an early age, and yet we willfully choose sin. From the earliest age, we try to cover it up. We try to excuse it. We try to forget it. I remember as 
a, a little child, as a, uh, I think I was six or five years old, I remember going to my godmother's house, and we, my mom and dad were there, and my, the parents were eating, and I was the only child at the time in the room, and there was this little bitty puppy dog, a little bitty porcelain puppy dog with big puppy dog eyes, and I was playing with that little puppy dog, and I remember we were getting ready to leave, and I asked my godmother, can I have this puppy dog? And she said, no, that was a special gift from so-and-so and her family. And so, you know, I put it on the, the table again. But wouldn't you know, little five-year-old Heath Harris, when they were all the adults were getting ready to put me in the car, I went right back to that table, grabbed that puppy dog, and put it in my shirt. I took that little puppy dog home, and when I got home, I put it there on top of my bed mantle. And it stayed there for about a week or two, and nobody ever noticed, and I had gotten away with it. That little puppy dog was mine. And my mom comes into my room one day and says, where'd you get that? And then we had to go through this spiel, and she made me march right back over to my godmother's house, admit what I had done, and give it back to her. I thank my mom for doing that. But from the earliest age, I knew it was wrong, and yet I did it anyway. And you know what? That's not changed in Heath Harris's life all these years. 32 years old, I still know what's wrong, but yet I'm still incapable of doing what is right, like the Apostle Paul says. There's something in my nature that is willful against the law of God. There's something inside of us that we look at sin and we like to, well, it wasn't that bad. It was just a little dog. It was no big deal. No, but that moment at five years old, I was guilty of an eternal hell. Sin is sin, and we can cover it up, we can excuse it, we can forget it, but the Bible says one lie makes me a liar, one lust makes me an adulterer, and one theft makes me a thief. Heath Harris is a thief and a liar and an adulterer outside of a holy and gracious God. It's even gone beyond that. As we get older, we even know willfully, we we go to church and we know, and the... uh, a pastor, uh, Paul Tripp, was giving this t- illustration. He says that in that moment of anger, we as believers, we know right and from wrong, but when someone makes us angry in that moment of anger, we don't care what we say. We want to tell that person off. We know it's wrong, but yet we do it anyway, and we actually enjoy it. We may feel bad later, but in that moment of anger, we have no thought of the eternal consequences of our sin. In that moment of looking at something we shouldn't have or saying something we shouldn't say, in that moment, we can, we are, our sin inside of us bucks up against the holiness of God, and we do it anyway, knowing it's wrong, knowing it's bad, knowing it's not in God's will. And he says, for that we understand we do not see the dark ugliness of our sin because we can do and say what we want and not care of the eternal consequences. We love our sin, Paris Reedhead said, and for this we deserve hell, because we love our sin. Every single one of us, apart from the grace and the mercy of a holy and loving God, we all deserve hell. And I think we have to come to that understanding, because it's very easy to think, well, I'm a pretty good person. I've got it all pretty good. I'm not going out there and doing those things as the world does. But unless we understand how much our sin is against a holy God, we'll never understand the grace and the mercy that He gave for us. We have to understand that sin is sin. Sin is sin. So number one, we think of our sin too lightly. And number two, why does God send the people to an eternal hell? 
Number one, that we think of our sin too lightly. Number two, it's that hell is not about you or me. Hell is not about you, and it's not about me. It's about the holiness of God. We deserve hell because we refuse His holiness. We refuse His truth. We're unable to come to His holiness. And hell is the absence of God's holiness. It's where we place our own selves. It's where we've uh, sent ourselves to. And there, what happens to us in hell is actually what happens to any being that rejects its own Creator. It's to, it, hell is the exact thing that happens to any creation that rejects its creator, to any pot that rejects the potter. It is crushed. It is destroyed. It is as a sin as our own cancer coming upon our own selves because we reject the very thing and the very person God has made us to be. We in turn turn inward. We in turn turn as an own, our own cancer begins to eat us away. And that is hell. It is the absence of God's holiness. It is because we've rejected who He said He wanted you to be, who He made you to be, and what He's told you to do. We, in turn, look at our Creator and say, that's not what I want. I know better for my life. I know who I should marry and how I should marry. I know what job I should have and what job I should I know where I should go. I know what pleases me and what doesn't please me. Don't tell me, God, what is good. I can define goodness. I can define love. I can define joy for my life. And man sits there at his creator and tells him how he ought to be made. And so hell is not about me. It is about a holy God. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He says, when men talk little of hell, it's because they think they have only a little sin and they believe in a little Savior. I just need Jesus a little bit because I only got a little sin. No, sir, ma'am, we are all deserving of the wrath of a holy God and eternal hell. You don't need Jesus just a little bit of saving. You don't go to that altar just for a little bit of dose of salvation, just to get you into heaven, No. We come to God destitute, broken, empty, and in need of His desperate mercy. He says, think lightly of hell and you'll think lightly of the cross. Think little of the suffering of lost souls and you'll soon think little of the Savior who delivers you from them. If you think lightly of hell, you'll think lightly of the cross. Hell is a reality and we all deserve it. And as they argue if there's a hell or not, I would propose this. If there is no hell, there would be no need of the cross. If there was no hell, there would be no cross. The cross stands today as utter proof there is an eternal hell and there is eternal judgment. If there was no judgment, if there was no hell, Jesus need not come. But the very proof that Jesus Christ came as a sinful man, uh, came and put on our sinful flesh and lived a holy and sinless life despite our weakness, and He led His own life to that cross, and He died a sinner's death, and He rose up again to new life. The very fact that the resurrection is proof today that Jesus Christ knew there was an eternal hell. There was something to be saved from. And unless you understand there is something there to be saved from, you can't be saved to anything. You've got to know what you're saved from. In the world today, the pastors want to preach the feel-good 12 steps to live a better life. The, the uh, good gets you over your valleys and God's got a destiny for you and there's good things for you and God is all about serving you. And God is all about building you up. But in fact, the truth is we're destined for an eternal hell. But there was a cross of Jesus Christ. Thank God there was a cross. Thank God there was a cross. There was a cross. Why hell? Because we think lightly of our sin. 
and because God is holy. But there is hope from a devil's hell. There is hope from a hell. And today it's because of the cross of Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verse 16. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? We know this verse very well. We rarely read to the next verse, but it says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. What are we talking about? We've got to understand what that word perish is talking about. It's so you wouldn't perish in eternal hell with weeping and agony and wailing in the darkness of night, bound with Satan and his demons, burning for all eternity. Oh, we just say, well, so I wouldn't have to live a bad life, Jesus came. No, He came so you wouldn't die for all eternity in weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world at that time but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Jesus, in Him, is not judged. Hallelujah. Just say that again. He who believes in Jesus will not be judged. That is the good news. If you believe, if you repent, if you turn to Him, He says He will not judge you, but those who do not believe, they've already been judged. Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, the judgment is upon our own selves. We judge our own selves. We bring judgment upon ourselves when we reject that call where someone calls you and says, Hey, come to church with me. Come find Jesus with me. Don't you know Jesus changed my life? Don't you know there is a God who is all-loving, who's all-powerful, who's full of grace and mercy, and He gave His only Son to die for you that you wouldn't spend eternity apart from Him? That's the good news. But when we reject that and when we say, I know how to live life, I know what's best for me. I don't care what the Word of God says. I like being angry. I don't care what the Word of God says. I like being mad at that person. I like choosing who I should be with, when I should be with them. I like deciding my own future, my own fate. When we redo those things, we reject the call that Jesus says, Come to me. He says, He who has not believed has been judged. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. We'll never say that. We'll never admit that to ourselves, that we like our sin better than the Word of God. But how often is that so very true? Even the best of us, myself, those far holier than me, those who have been walking with Jesus far more than me, we all can say, there are moments in my life where I willfully chose to say that, I knew I shouldn't have said it, but I did. I knew I shouldn't have did that, but I did. Lord, help me to see how evil sin is. Because why? Why do I... What is all this for? And why am I saying all this today? The first is that Jesus' death is proof that there is a judgment and there is a hell, but also that God loves you, that He is merciful, that God is loving, that He is perfect, And His perfect will is that not one of us would spend not even a single minute, not a millisecond in the devil's hell. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to what? Repentance. God is gracious. He's a God of second, third, and fourth, and a thousand chances. And Jesus' walk on this earth and His death is proof enough that there is a hell, but that God loves you. And He came because God is holy. The gospel is not just about me and you avoiding hell. You know, it's not really about us. And I think that sometimes we think about this, well, I need to repent because I don't want to go there. 
Well, that's a good starting place. But hell and coming to God and to repentance is not about avoiding eternal fire. It's about coming to a God who loves you. It's about seeing God for who He really is. It's about coming to God and saying, God, You deserve my worship for Your amazing grace. That, God, You, you saved me when You didn't have to. You see, it's not about me. Because if I look at me and I just say, well, it's just about me. I don't want to go to hell because I don't want to be in pain for all ever. You've not seen the grace and the love and the mercy of God. Life will still all be about you. Your Christian life will still try to serve you. But instead, it's coming to God and say, God, I thank you that I was not what I should have been. And I'm so sorry for my sin. But God, I see your holiness now. I see your love now. I see my identity in you now. I see your great mercy that was lavished on me on the cross of Jesus Christ and you deserve my lifelong worship. You deserve my lifelong obedience because how great a a debt you paid for me. How great a sacrifice. You see, if you don't understand the depravity of going to a devil's hell, you'll never understand the immense grace of eternity with Jesus Christ. It's to understand, God, it's all about you and what you did. God, it's all for you. My life is now given completely up. I don't want my life anymore. I don't want to decide what I do and when I do and how I do it. I don't want to be in control of what I say because I know when I was in that place, I was headed for destruction. But God, if I come over here, my life has become worship unto you. A sacrifice, like Paul says, a living sacrifice to you. God, I'm I'm just thankful to be saved. Anybody? I'm thankful to be saved today. Paris Reedhead said this, famous pastor. He says, you don't deserve Jesus, but Jesus deserves you because he died for you. I love that. I love that. I don't deserve him, but because he paid the price for me, he deserves me. You think of it this way. You are Jesus's gift to God. You are the the thing He's going to present His Father. In John chapter 17, He even tells the Father, Father, You've given these over into my hand, and, and let's keep them together. And God, I'm praying for them that they would be one as we are one. You see, on that great and final day after the judgment is over, and you've said, uh, the, those who have been cast to the left have said, Depart from me. And those to the right, He says, Come on in, faithful and true. You are my servants, those who held the truth. You who overcame the Word, who love me more than your sin. He'll turn and I believe he'll look to the Father and say, Father, look what I have to give you. This is my present to you, my gift to you. I have paid for these with my own blood. I have ransomed them from hell. They are here to worship you. Your whole life is to worship God. It's not about you. Hell is not about you. Heaven is not about you. It is about being a worshiper of the King. You were made to worship God, and you are Christ's reward to the Father. Get over yourself. It's not about you. Be the worshiper that Jesus has bought you to be. He deserves your worship. He deserves your obedience. And the good news is this. Even though there is a hell, there was a cross. And I want to realize, number one today, hell is real. And Jesus said it's worth in Mark chapter 9 that if you felt there was a part of you, your hand, your eye, whatever it may be, if it was going to cause you to sin and go to hell, hell is so real, so so fiery, so eternal, it would be worth it for you to cut your own hand off and to go to heaven with just one hand, then go to hell with two. That's how real he thought it was. 
Because he'd been there. He made it. He knew what it was going to be. And it was serious for him. So serious that he would die because sin is serious and it leads to eternal hell. And so my challenge for you and I today, if you're an unbeliever in this place, is you've got to start hating your sin. As a believer, I've got to start hating my sin. But Jude said it this way when I just read this morning. Jude, uh, he says that hate rescues some, snatching them from the fire, and even hating the smell of smoke of the sin, simply as if they had gotten so close to hell because of their sin, and you'd rescue them back from hell. I don't want any part of anything in that place. I hate even the smell of the smoke of hell, even the, even the taste of sin, even in my nostrils, the smell of sin. I hate it. And Jude say, that's how you should live your life to the Lord. Hate even the stench of hell. I should hate sin. And I should start crucifying my flesh with Paul daily. That Christ would live in me and not I myself. God has grown me over the last several weeks just to begin to realize my own inability to be perfect without Him. And for hours the last several weeks, I have just been contemplating my own evil in my own mind and to see my own depravity and how unholy I really am apart from a holy God. And I have been struggling and struggling. God, take these thoughts out of my mind. God, take this desire, this pride that builds up inside of me. God, the the desire for the flesh and the things of flesh. And God, I've been crying out, God, can you get rid of this? But instead, I have understanding now that if I see this and I remind God is allowing that thorn in the flesh to be there. So I remember to rely on his grace and to remember where I would be headed without him, lest pride be buffed up in me, that I would see myself as good enough without the grace and the love of God. Hate our sin. Crucify the flesh. And our motivation must not be to avoid the pain of hell and try to gain the pleasure of heaven but that we would be loving worshipers of a holy and gracious God. He deserves our worship for what He has done for us. That He came, He paid our debt, He lowered Himself and went down to that pit of hell, and He grabbed the keys and the authority back. And now today, He, has reign, he is reigning on the throne today. And if you repent and believe, you give your whole life to follow Him and live by His Spirit your whole life, and you live by His Spirit, the Bible says if you love Him more than your sin, you'll receive an eternal reward. I think that's a lifelong thing for me. That every day, I need to remember, Heath, do you love God more than you love your sin? Do I love God more than this attitude I'm carrying? Do I love God more than my status in the community? Do I love God more than my wife, my kids? Do I love God more than the accolade of man? Do I love God more than my job? Do I love God more than my marriage? Do I love God more than the pleasures of this world of vacations and relaxations and money and all the joys that this earthly world has to offer? Do I love spending time with God in prayer more than TV? Do I love spending time with God and being in His presence more than anything else in this world today? It says, if that's the kind of believer you are, Lord, help America. If that's the kind of believer you are, you can be certain you have no fear of judgment. You can be certain on that day that you are more valuable than many sparrows because you've repented and you've become a worshiper of the King. 
God has washed your sin away white as snow as far as the east is from the west because you've grieved over your sin and you've believed and you confessed and you've placed in your heart the love of God. So to the unbeliever today, there is hope from a devil's hell. If you understand hell is real, sin is serious, and it's not all about you. It's about being a worshiper of the King. And to the believer, I'm going to close with this. Church, this is a message really for you and for me. I love what Francis Chan said in his book, Erasing Hell, debating this subject of hell. He said, as a church, we must always remember, it's not about a doctrine, it's about people's destination. And if ever we think this is something to be yelled at in the streets to someone without the weeping of our hearts and the mercy and the love of God, we can't preach hell without preaching the love of God. That's not what it's all about. Jesus came because He knew there was a hell, but that He loved us. And church, we've got to get to a place in our lives to understand you and I have a responsibility to tell the truth of coming judgment and of the love of God. I want God to get me past the point of inviting someone to a little Easter egg hunt or a little church play, but to invite them into Jesus Christ's loving arms because apart from Him there is no hope. We've got to get back to the simple truth of the Gospel and not be pandering and catering around and being weak on hell and weak on sin, but to call out those even in our midst and say, that is sin, and beware, that's going to lead you to a place apart from God. And to say, well, maybe that's not the best decision. Maybe there's a better... No, 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 That's sin. Stop it. Because sin is serious. Serious enough for Jesus Christ to die on the cross and come into this place and walk with us and talk with us and die for us. It's that serious, church. And the days are numbered that He's coming back and time is short. And we need to be witnessing to our family and friend, not in this utter hopelessness, not in this chaos and panic mode, but in the confident love of God that He has given us the power of the Holy Spirit to do and complete this mission with all the power of heaven on our side. We're not here weak. We're not here powerless. We don't stand in this world full of chaos and evil and stand amazed or in shock. We know this world is headed to hell. We see it all around us, and we shouldn't fear it. We shouldn't fear what we see on the news. We shouldn't fear what we see happening in our families. But we should stand at the gates of hell and say, Listen, there is a truth that God so loves you. He's willing to save you from your own destruction. If you believe and confess Him as Lord of your life, not just a good God. We know God loves the world, but He's still willing to send the world to hell if they do not repent. And America wanted to preach loving God and the rainbows of heaven. And we wanted all that is wonderful. He is love. But He is still willing to send those who will not repent to an eternal hell. Why? Because their sin cannot stand in the holiness of heaven. If they would be brought to heaven, their sin would cor- corrupt the holiness of God's eternity that you and I, He's prepared for. This is a message primarily for the church today. Are we concerned? Church, are we lukewarm? Are we making light of hell? And are we light on sin? Maybe there's sin in our own life as believers that we've been pandering around with. We've been light on it. But that's going to make us ineffective for the ministry that God has for us. Will that one sin send you to eternal hell? Apart from repentance and faith, yes, it will. But in Christ Jesus, is there hope for us who struggle with sin? Absolutely. 
Is there mercy for those of us who are pursuing a holiness with God but yet falter? Absolutely. Once we're in the grace of God, once we've chosen to be in His will, once we become a worshiper of the King, we're going to struggle, we're going to falter. But the important part for us is that I am continually crucifying the flesh, I'm hating the sin, I'm loving God more and more each day. Where are we headed? That's what matters. Where are you headed? Close with these verses. Preach and persuade. Preach and persuade. Second Timothy, Paul says to his son in the faith, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. He says, preach the word. Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead, so preach the word. And Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Church, we need to get a fresh dose of the importance of eternity. To know what it is, how fearful it is to be apart from a holy and loving God. And what awaits so many of our families and friends. I think of those that I've witnessed to that I know. Those that have been placed in my life that I know have turned away for God. And I, I weep over those more than anybody. Thinking of those that I may have misspent their life and missed their opportunity. But I'm, not called, to, I'm called to preach the word. They're called to decide what they're going to do about it. And I want us to get to this place this morning. I want to ask the worship team to come and I want us to pray. God, may I not be light on sin. God, may I be, have a heart for the lost. God, may I have faith that not just to get me out of hell, but God, that makes me a worshiper, that makes me in love with the God who saved my soul, that He was willing to pay so great a price that I would appreciate the cross for what it is. Not taking advantage of, Like Hebrews says, not neglecting so great a salvation, we would see how great a price Jesus paid for us. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's reflect on the Lord this morning. Let's get a picture of His love.